This episode is brought to you by the generous support of LaPay, a Texas member benefit provider. Getting paid just got a lot easier. Check them out at LaPay.com. That's LaPay.com for more details. And now onto the show. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're at the State Bar of Texas annual meeting here. This is the State Bar of Texas podcast, obviously. And I'm not your regular host, as I'm sure you have recognized them. Stepping in here for Rocky Deer. He is attending some other matters, but he'll be back. There'll be another episode or two after this. But uh, anyway, I have a wonderful, uh, wonderful panel of guests here that just, I think you just got finished uh, presenting, or maybe that was yesterday. I think it was yesterday. Astroworld Aftermath Litigation and its Impact on the Live Events Industry. Is that correct? You guys did it yesterday? Yes, that's right. How'd it go? Just uh, how do you feel about it? It was a lot of fun. This is different than a lot of CLEs we've done because it was kind of a point-counterpoint discussion where we had arguments from the plaintiff's side, arguments from the defense side, and it was, it was pretty interactive. We're going to get to see a little bit of that cat fight coming up, right? So uh, point-counterpoint thing coming up? We're ready. All right, perfect. Well, let's do some introductions. So I've got a nice I got a nice panel here. So I've got uh, Saba Syed. She's uh, joining us. And so where do you work? Where, uh, what do you do? Hi, Lawrence, everyone. My name is Saba Syed. I'm a partner and civil litigator at Bell Nunnally. We're a Dallas law firm. Excellent, excellent. And we have Brent Terman joining us as well. So where do you work? What do you do, sir? Yes, so I'm a partner. I'm also a litigator at the full service firm of Bell Nunnally and Martin in Dallas. And I'm also here because I am the uh, chair of the State Bar of Texas Entertainment Sports Law Section. Did you know that Soba works at your firm? I, I did. We've tried cases before. Oh, okay. I just didn't know if you guys I, knew each I've other. I've never met Brent before. <laughs> never? Yeah, today's my first day meeting him. Awesome. So. I love it. I love it. All right, so uh, Barrett, where do you work? What do you do? I'm a trial lawyer with Hamilton Wingo LLP in Dallas, Texas. We are a plaintiff's trial boutique firm, and we handle primarily catastrophic injury litigation. Okay, so you're going to be on the opposite side of the fence from Subba. Is that correct? Uh, yes, sir. The right side. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I, I beg to differ. We'll, we'll see about that. <laughs> All right. So I know there's a disclaimer coming up here as we try to do before we get into the content. So uh, who wants to read the disclaimer? Yeah, definitely. Just I'll do it for everyone who so have to do it. Uh, just with this, obviously, we are not involved in this litigation. There's a gag order in place. We aren't going to violate court orders here. And obviously, these opinions are our own opinions. They're not the opinions of our firms. I think that covers it. Barrett, Seba? I think that's it. All right. You nailed it. Thank you, Brent. All right. So we're going to begin. So obviously, this is a mass casualty event uh, that we're going to talk about. So I mean, it's definitely a somber topic. And uh, this is one, unfortunately, I missed a little bit in the news cycle. So I'm going to need your help kind of piecing it together. So let's let's start with uh, what happened. And as we were doing on our pregame, I don't really understand the Astro World uh, venue. So I, as you were saying, it's, it was a former amusement park, closed down, reopened, repurposed. So maybe kind of walk us through that and maybe the events that day. Yes. And let me tell you a little bit about Travis Scott first, because that leads us to Astro World. So a lot of people with this podcast may not be familiar with his brand of music it's it's, some people call it mumble rap but with it regardless with I guess the youths you would say he is insanely popular and he is I guess famous for his energy his excitement that he brings at his shows they are very very high energy events and I'm sure the plaintiff's attorney Barrett over here will be commenting on that shortly but with this, he is famous in Houston. He had an album called Astroworld. And Astroworld for him was a happy place for him growing up because of this excitement, roller coasters, up and down, things like that, right? And so he, kind of an homage to that and that part of his life, has this festival, two-day music festival called Astroworld, the Astroworld Festival in Houston. Several years, and the year we're here to talk about is the November 2021, which we saw in the news. And as Subba explained in a presentation, this was, this was a perfect storm 
for things to go wrong for a lot of reasons. Right. And, you know, you'll, what you have here is an artist who is highly revered, coming back to his hometown, and it feels like a homecoming after two years of COVID. Everyone's excited to see him, and his music is high energy, just like Brent said. But to give you an image of this, people are stage diving off of his concerts. People are moshing. I mean, it is a true fun event, and people love it. And so you have an artist like that who is high energy, but then on the other hand, you have a what is really a post-pandemic world, and we all know how hard it is to find good help after the co- after COVID. Um, it's hard to find people, hire, hard to hire people, and that's especially true for the live events industry, which was effectively on hiatus for two years. So things like finding enough security, finding finding the ability to train enough people to uh, guard the entrances, that's been challenging. So. What ultimately happened is a perfect storm. You have a high-energy artist, and then you have an event that has been somewhat difficult to staff. And on top of that, you have very, very excited individuals in a sold-out venue uh, with 50,000 tickets sold. And on top of that, you have people who have not been used to working live events for years because they haven't been going on at this scale. Well, I think too, like, uh, you know, just, you know, when you get kind of out of practice, there's little things you forget about. I mean, just think about, you know, when you don't travel as much and you go to the airport, you kind of forget a few steps and like, you know, things happen. And so if you're not like in the regular, if you're not in the regular course of doing things and this is your first event back, I'd imagine there's probably a lot of things missed on the checklist. So, but uh, like, continue on. Well, that's really, that gets us to the event and and anyone watch the news, you know what happened. It was, there was a crowd crush event, um, reportedly about 30 minutes into Travis Scott's set which happened after nine o'clock on one evening, uh, that it was declared a mass casualty event. The show went on. Uh, we, we don't know the exact timing of the deaths yet, but to date there have been 10 reported deaths and one death of an unborn child and hundreds and hundreds of, in, of injuries and we currently have the multi-district litigation. Well, I think, Barrett, you have some stats on that. So 11 deaths, and then how many, there's extensive and less extensive injuries? Yeah, absolutely. So in the context of this multi-district litigation case, it's kind of lumped all these cases together. They've characterized it into kind of three buckets. You've got uh, the deaths, and we talked about there uh, sadly were 11 deaths. Now, there were about 750 or so injuries requiring extensive medical treatment, and then there's another 1,650 or so injuries requiring less extensive medical treatment. Now, exactly what that means, we don't know at this point. Those are the types of things that are going to be hashed out in discovery in the individual cases. Is there any idea on like how much, I mean, just in medical damages, this is going to be like any estimates, early estimates? We, we are so early in this right now. And because it's multi-district litigation, it's, it's going to be a long multi-year long process. Right. We're very early right now. It, some of the earliest numbers that were thrown around was $750 million. Wow. But it's probably going to be much more than that. Some other numbers that are being thrown around is $2 billion. Wow. I, that, that's that's a staggering number. Um, and that's, you know, potentially a, uh, a venue ender right there. I mean, I don't know how many businesses can take a $2 billion loss like that. Well, and, and you think about it, too, from this is probably from, from Barrett's and the plaintiff's perspective, there are a lot of potential def- defendants who have very deep pockets or substantial insurance policies. And these are things that are all going to come into play, definitely. Well, let's talk about the uh, the organizations and perhaps individuals that are sort of in the crosshairs of all those lawsuits. Now, is this being set up as a class action? Are they pulling people in because similar event, or how is it working so far? No, this is an MDL litigation, and Barron and I can talk about this a little bit from the defense and, and plaintiff's perspective. But effectively, we have four of over 400 lawsuits that are being consolidated, or actually in, in one court, Judge Kristen Hawkins' court, and that is going to be uh, the court that handles the pretrial issues 
issues, some of the procedural issues? Yeah, absolutely. So, so they are individual lawsuits, uh, you know, in, involving individual people who were there, perhaps the family members, surviving family members of folks that passed away. Uh, the purpose of that MDL is to uh, kind of create some efficiency uh, so that they don't have to do a corporate rep- representative depot of, you know, Apple or Live Nation, whoever it is, 400 separate times. And, and so the common legal issues, discovery issues, a lot of that is going to be handled in the MDL court. Okay, so uh, kind of getting back to the the defendants that could be possibly in the crosshairs of this litigation, and we're obviously the venue. So who, I guess the ownership of the venue, right? Uh, whatever that is, is a, I guess it's a closed amusement park that got reopened for a limited purpose. And really, this if you see the pictures in the presentation, it's a large parking lot, right, at a venue. And then the stage is built in. It's massive. But there are so many defendants. We can't name them all today. Obviously, the first one, Travis Scott, right? Travis Scott's the guy on stage. On top of that, we have other performers like Drake, who appeared on part of that final set of the night. We have the uh, companies, the various companies, who put on and manage these shows. Uh, I think... A definite one that's going to come up is the company that was contracted to do security. Uh, and we have lots of other legal issues and other people that will be brought in for sure. We have Apple Music broadcasting it, streaming it live, uh, and a lot more we can get into, but I don't know how much time we have on well, this. Let, let's talk about that. So let's talk about kind of the fault that might be a play. I think this is where we get into sort of the point counterpoint. So I guess, you know, maybe from the plaintiff side of things, you know, where, um, you know, when you're looking at this and, and you're looking at performance arts, I mean, I definitely get if you're riling people up, but, you know, it's also a performance. And so, you know, people go to an event to be excited. So walk me through the fault that the performance artists might have. Maybe we can kind of go down the uh, the chain there and talk about uh, possible uh, legal theories. Well, in, in terms of the actual artist himself, Travis Scott, for me personally, I, I think the other entities are, are more at fault uh, and are going to be. Uh, the more likely and, and meaningful targets in, in the litigation. Uh, but Mr. Scott himself, I mean, he's got lyrics uh, that verbatim say things like, it, it ain't no mosh pit unless there's injuries. You know, uh, he is encouraging this type of behavior, and it's kind of been a pattern in practice of his live shows. And, you know, bringing that type of injury energy to a show is fantastic. That's why people love him so much. But he's been charged criminally in connection with multiple shows uh, in 2017. In fact, a couple of weeks after an incident in which he was charged for inciting, uh, inciting a riot, I believe was the charge. Um, a couple of weeks later in New York, uh, a young man fell from a third floor balcony during his show. was paralyzed. And this happened minutes after Travis Scott encouraged another concert attendee to literally jump from the second floor balcony into the crowd below. That person was okay, but I mean, this looks really bad and it speaks directly to the issue of this being a foreseeable and a preventable disaster. How does the defense side respond to that? I mean, so, I mean, somebody does get hurt, but at the same time, it's not like, you know, it's not like people don't have autonomy. Well, the quick answer is that every defendant's going to have different defenses. So if I was representing Travis Scott, I would take issue with using my lyrics against me. Um, for example, you know, we've this, the courts have litigated and, and have discussed rap as a form of free artistic expression. I think that that would play into the discussion here. But 
I think this case really boils down to three defenses, one of them being proportionate responsibility. There's 100% of liability to go around, and each defendant's going to be pointing their finger at the other one. So if I'm Travis Scott, I'm going to be pointing the finger at ASM or the party that was managing and contracting for security. Uh, There's also the third-party criminal conduct. It's well established in Texas that a party is not responsible for another person's third-party criminal conduct. So we have people who were barricading the entrances at the beginning, not responsible for that or for the the assaultive behavior during the concert. Well, you just mentioned criminal, but what about civil? I mean, it's totally, totally different. So um, how about the civil side of that? Well, we're going to have, I mean, that's that's a fair point, but really it's going to come down to criminal conduct. And there is a way to characterize the conduct as criminal. So if trespass, for example, is going to be a way we can bring that in. And that's one thing I didn't say earlier, that, a little background here. 2 p.m. the day of the show, people stormed through the entrance. I mean, that's, that's trespassing. That's illegal. Running past and sometimes through security guards. So that that's one thing that definitely Sebo would bring up as a defense counsel. Right. And the final defense I could see coming up is, is more of a procedural issue, and that's a responsible third-party designation. And I can see a responsible third-party designation for Harris County. Um, Harris County certainly had some involvement in this, and there are reports that they actually met with Travis Scott the day before the concert because they had concerns about its safety. And with that, too, there's one other... Really interesting fact here, and this is going to be key in discovery and evidence, knowing what people knew and when they knew it. And this is what secondhand, thirdhand, I'm not sure this has been officially stated, but it's been, I guess, speculated today that Houston PD knew approximately halfway through Travis Scott's set this was a mass casualty event. Someone, you know, this is again, secondhand, thirdhand, I wasn't there, uh, decided that if we shut down the show now, it is going to be a guaranteed riot, and things will be worse than what happens if we let the show go forward. In the spirit of equity, I'm going to loop Barrett back in, because there are two of you on this side of it. So I'm going to loop him back in just for a brief reply there. Wow. Um, there, there, there's a lot there, uh, but particularly, I, I want to just maintain a laser focus on the fact that this was preventable, and this was foreseeable. This was a massive event they were charging attendees $300 for a base level ticket. There were more expensive tickets than that. And we're talking about 50,000 ticketed attendees. Now, yes, there were some folks jumping over barricades and, and pushing people around. Those things are going to happen. But as an organizer, as a producer, as a promoter of one of these events, you have to plan for that. And we're going to hear through the course of this litigation from some experts, and we've heard from uh, one already that I've, I've uh, read. He's been quoted in a few articles. His name's Paul Wertheimer, and he actually consults on this. He's got a firm called Crowd Management Strategies, and, and he says when you don't plan for the worst, it will happen. And he notes, he studies these events and says, it's the same recurring theme over and over again, and it's been happening for decades, and that is crowd surge, crowd rush, crowd collapse, death. And the sad thing is it gets a lot of news when it happens, but then nothing changes, and it will happen again until some of these companies are held accountable and they make sure that they put in the right investment into making these safe events for the attendees. 
you know, Barrett's making a pretty good argument here for the standard of care that's due. And these are licensees after all with the, with the ticket holders. So I'll give you guys one more reply. Then I want to move on to how this changes venues because uh, and I'm, I'm drawing sort of a correlation here to the Champagne Towers down in Florida. You know, uh, when those went down, they sent shockwaves across HOAs across the country. And so people reacting. And I, I know the building I was living in, they were updating their insurance policies immediately mm-hmm. after that. So I want to transition, transition to that. But I want to give you guys the final word there just to respond on that standard of care. Oh, yeah. One thing I think the standard of care is going to be important because it's a legal issue for every defendant. And each defendant is involved to a different capacity, right? They, they're going to have different standards of care of what they're expected to do. Uh, but one thing I have to say before we move on is plaintiff's attorney is going to have a lot of bad things to say about defendants. Strategically, when you represent a defendant, you can use what he says about other defendants to your advantage, right? There's 100% to go around. You want to make sure you vigorously advocate for your client and make sure you have the smallest percentage on you to the extent there's some sometimes business uh, considerations make, could make that difficult to do in the client's interest. But those are things to think about going right. forward. And and to follow up on the standard of care, experts are going to be so important by both plaintiffs and defendants in setting that standard of care. And I think that, that if we do see changes in the live events industry, it's going to be through the expert testimony. Uh, Harris County has decided not to do an independent investigation into this event. So the expert testimony that comes out in this case is really going to be critical in changing how we conduct live events in the future. Well, let's get into that because I can imagine that insurance policies are probably going to have to have uh, larger, I guess, payouts at some point if you have one of these huge events. Uh, There's probably going to be insurance companies are going to be looking at this and say, I am not going to insure this building unless you have some type of crowd control mechanism in there. Um, you got to have X amount of maybe security. So maybe talk about some of that. Why don't we click it over to Barrett here and we'll just kind of go down the table and you know just come up, kind of come up with some ideas. What do you think is coming down the pipeline here? You know, I I think there's a possibility, uh, certainly for special event insurance, uh, having higher underwriting requirements in terms of what is your crowd management safety plan look like? How many security staff per attendees are you going to have? And, you know, what 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 types of inspections are going to be done on the front end? I mean, one one interesting issue that, that we've seen in studying this event is there were actually security staff that quit the day of because they got there and saw that the conditions were so bad they didn't want to be involved in it. And so I I, I think those types of planning issues on the front end, uh, they're just going to be enforced a lot more heavily moving forward. And so one thing I I thought was really interesting, so in my first career I was in television film production. I worked for ESPN College Football for years. And if any of you have been to a big high-profile college football game, you see there's this person on the field called the Red Hat. And most of the time it's a guy, but he's got a red hat on, and he's got his arm up in the air when we're on commercial break. Everyone knows to look to him. They look to him to know when they can't play and when they can. Now, that's not, that doesn't fix everything, right? But ideas like that, because think about Travis Scott. He's up on stage. You cannot hold him accountable for knowing what's going on throughout that entire crowd of people. So things we can put in place to have clear communication are things I'm definitely looking forward to seeing. And one more change that I would anticipate for the live events industry or just something to look out for if you're a vendor in the live events industry is to take a look at your contracts um, and see what the insurance policy and insurance provisions look like. So if you have an insurance policy that excludes 
penalty damages, uh, then that could be a concern because what we have here is claims of negligence, but also gross negligence. So you don't want to be on the hook for gross negligence, uh, punitive damages, especially if you're a company with deep pockets. Um, the other issue to look at is your indemnification provisions. So indemnification is kind of the way you pass the buck on liability. Who's really responsible for the wrongful conduct? Taking a look at that and making sure you're not on the hook for someone else's wrongful conduct is going to be important. And we saw a little bit, uh, and I'm going to cross the chasm over from the civil side back to the criminal side, but we saw this a little bit in Florida, you know, after, uh, you know, after the civil unrest of uh, 2020, they started passing some legislation that uh, would hold people that rioted more accountable, at least from a criminal level. Do you, do you foresee that in Texas happening? And maybe, you know, people seeing this event, this mass casualty event, say, hey, you know what, when you have these outdoor venues and it gets beyond a certain number, maybe we need to pass some legislation to kind of control the crowds from a criminal point of view, or not so much one over. I'm a little skeptical about that. Um, you know, particularly in Texas, we're we care a lot about individual rights, and certainly uh, we've been going to concerts for as long as I can remember. And I've certainly uh, been in a mosh pit before and been pushed around and, and pushed a little bit let you myself. Let's go school. And, You've been and, in a mosh pit. Uh, oh, oh, is this going out publicly? Oh, oh, uh oh. Um, no, uh, but. But what I'm saying is, uh, you know, I, I don't think that they're going to criminalize uh, a reasonable participation in, like, the physical aspect of, of being in a mosh pit at a concert. I mean, I, first off, I don't know how you would enforce it. Are they going to bring police in and arrest everybody that bumps into somebody at a concert? No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, and, and I don't think anyone's arguing for that either because we don't want to take away the heart and soul of the live performance industry, we want this to be an enjoyable uh, uh, outlet for, for folks. And, you know, with Travis Scott, you had a bunch of young people going to see their hero, one of their heroes, and we want them to be able to engage with them on a meaningful level. And there is a physical aspect to it. I just don't think that it will be or should be criminalized, at least as I see it right now. We're going to have to leave it there because we're definitely out of time. But I, I want to open the floor field to leave some contact information for our listeners who want to follow up and learn a little bit more. And since you uh, were so kind to come out and present, uh, I want to leave some, with uh, some contact information. Hey, everybody. This is Sabah Syed. Would you like me to leave my email address? Whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah, my email address is ssyed at belldunnally. That's B-E-L-L-N-U-N-N-A-L-L-Y.com. And Brent Terman. I am Terman at bellnunnally.com. Don't need to spell it again, but come find me on LinkedIn. All right. Sounds good. Barrett. And my email is brobin, that's B-R-O-B-I-N at hamiltonwingo.com, H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N-W-I-N-G-O.com. And that's a wrap all the time that we have for this episode of the State Bar of Texas podcast brought to you by LaPay. Thank you so much again, LaPay. And also, big thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Now, Amazon Music, or better yet, your favorite podcasting app. I'm Lawrence Cluddy. Until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>